0: to this Endo Life episode 101. I'm Jessica Duffin, I'm an endo warrior, an endo health coach and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always this podcast is here to educate and shouldn't be used as a replacement for your current medical treatment. Before we dive into today's episode I want to give a shout out to my lovely sponsors at BU Um, and I wanted to tell you about their new bath bombs which are naturally made um and contain beautiful essential oils and their peppermint and eucalyptus essential oils um bath bomb is doing so well right now with endometriosis community they're getting loads of feedback about it um and you know if you love the patches themselves you're gonna love the bath bombs because essentially I'm back and I'm really excited about the episodes I've got lined up for you and particularly excited about today's interview. I was just, I mean, you could probably hear it in my voice when you listen to the interview, but um, I was just enthralled by everything um, that Dr. Nicole Cozine had to say. Um, It was just fascinating. So today's episode, as you may have guessed by now, is with pelvic floor physiotherapist, Dr. Nicole Casine. Nicole is totally changing the way we think about the pelvic floor and how we treat pelvic floor disorders and pelvic pain. And IC is one of her biggest passion areas and specialist areas. She is the owner of Pelvic Sanity and the author of the Interstitial Cystitis Solution, which Honestly, it's just an amazing resource for both patients. And I would argue practitioners alike. Um, There are definitely a couple of, yeah, health practitioners that I've spoken to in my lifetime who I think would really benefit from reading this book and just kind of getting a broader awareness of the different areas of um, IC and the different things that affect it of course, many of us already know that endometriosis and pelvic pain are very commonly found together. In fact, more often than not, they're found together. And I think that just having that extra layer of IC on top of endo can often just be totally overwhelming and confusing. It's already enough to manage one chronic condition. Two is just, you know, on another level entirely. So, That's why I'm dedicating a lot to exploring IC at the moment along, you know, not alongside, but um, as part of the work that I do with endometriosis because it's so prevalent and often it's contributing to our pelvic pain, whether we realise that it's, you know, IC or not. And what I love about Nicole's work is that she takes a really refreshing and kind of almost radical approach to IC in contrast to the conventional um, methods and she actually rarely addresses the bladder itself instead because she's done so much research because she's a specialist because she's seen so many clients and patients with IC and endo she has developed an approach with her treatment plans for IC that actually address dysfunction inflammation and pain signals rather than just sort of spot treating the symptoms and blaming the bladder for everything. She's looking at a more holistic whole body approach. In this episode we discuss how do you know if you have IC when you've kind of lived with pelvic pain for so long uh, you know you've lived with endo for so long and what actually is normal bladder function because I know when I started developing IC I didn't ever think that there was a problem I I honestly don't know I just I don't know what I thought um but you know it was only as it got out of control that I realized something was wrong and I wish I had gotten on top of that earlier um we talk about the theories behind IC and the validity of them and really how much of you know how many of these theories have solid truth behind them We talk about common IC triggers and also some of the triggers that are like the theories that are floating around with triggers and how much they are actually affecting our bladder pain. So oxalates, histamines, estrogen. And one of the biggest areas that we discuss is how the brain is more responsible for our IC pain and our pelvic pain than our bladder actually is and why that occurs and what we can do about it. And finally, we talk about really tangible things that we can do at home to downregulate the nervous system, to calm pain signals down and to actually do a lot of the kind of pelvic floor fascia and fascia release at home, which is just fascinating. I've watched the video since. So um, there's a lot of actionable takeaways that you can go away and practice at home. And I've put the links to those videos that we discuss in the show notes, so make sure you check those out. Okay, so um, rather than just telling you all about the interview, I will let you get to it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So, Nicole, welcome to the podcast. It's so lovely to have you. Um I'm obviously going to be doing an intro, but I'd love to hear in your own words, like your story and what led you into the work you do now. And yeah, the work that you mainly do with your patients and your book.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm always super excited to talk about interstitial cystitis. Um, So my name is Nicole Cozine. I am a doctor of physical therapy or a physio, as some of your listeners might call me. Um, I specialize in pelvic health, but then also even have a subspecialty in pelvic pain conditions, and even a further subspecialty in interstitial cystitis. So um, I worked for a hospital-based system for about five years here in the United States. Then I worked for a smaller private practice um, in a pelvic health clinic and I now have my own pelvic health clinic in Southern California. Um, and that's about halfway, um, it's in Orange County. So it's about halfway between Los Angeles and San Diego, for those of you who are geography people. Um, and I have myself plus four other physical therapists and we all, that's all we do. It's called pelvic sanity. We treat men and women with pelvic health conditions. Um, and because I wrote the interstitial cystitis solution, which is a book, um, all on IC. In 2016, I see quite, our clinic sees quite a bit of interstitial cystitis patients. And mm-hmm. um, I'm excited to share with you guys here about um, how it doesn't have to be so doom and gloom as everybody you know thinks about it on the internet. So it can be a very scary diagnosis, but I kind of want to dispel a lot of those myths and um, know that you can can get some lasting
0: relief from IC. Okay, amazing. Yeah, that's that sounds so reassuring because I think as I've been dealing with endometriosis for years now, and I've really got it under control, but my I C is is um, another thing to to battle with. So I'm glad to hear that it doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. So
1: yeah, yeah, and it's it can get scary on the internet, mm-hmm. right? And, and all those chat rooms and and um, you know, I'm really just in in a place where I really want to spread just like the positive, practical, evidence-based information. And not to say that, because you're right, it can be a doozy, right? It can be really tough. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't want to downplay that at all, but I do want to spread some positivity around it too, and some you
0: can do attitude, you know? Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons why I started working in endometriosis because the forums are great and they serve a role, but often they are places where people go to express their struggles. And so if that's the only place where you're going to seek your support, it can be a really overwhelming, um, yeah, experience that makes you feel really negative. So um, yes. yeah, I'm definitely on the same page with you on that. Cool. So for anyone who hasn't listened to um, previous episodes, or they're just not really sure what I see is, can you give us an overview? Because I know there's kind of, Varying components of IC. Yes. So so the,
1: the overarching definition as we sort of understand it now is you know relatively simply, it is a condition where the primary two symptoms are urinary urgency and or frequency combined with pelvic pain. And when you have those two things together, you can, just by symptoms alone, be diagnosed with interstitial cystitis. That's one of the other myths that we can bust, um, where a lot of people think that there is a diagnostic test to do to prove that you have interstitial cystitis. Um, You know, like kind of like with endometriosis, right? No one can actually diagnose it definitively until they actually see it. Yeah. on, you know, in a a surgical exploration. And so there is no such thing like that for IC. Um, And so, you know, there is something that you can do called a cystoscopy, which is putting a camera up into the bladder to look at the bladder. But really all that's doing is ruling out other causes of your symptoms. So
0: interesting. I didn't know that.
1: Totally. So it's completely what they call a diagnosis of exclusion. To this day, even though it's been studied relatively extensively over the last probably uh, probably since like 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, has been really extensively studied, and even a little bit before then. So you know, it's another thing. A lot of people think that that no one's doing any research on it; that it's sort of a lost cause. Um, but there have been two really, really robust studies. Um, one is was in 2011, and one is still ongoing in phase two, um, called the MAP study, and it, um, yeah, it's it's giving us a very good look at the condition, who has it, who doesn't have it, and what are the sort of commonalities between patients that do have it and those that don't.
0: Oh my gosh. Okay. That sounds fascinating. Um, I'll link to that in the show notes. Can I just find it on PubMed?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll send you the link totally because okay. there's a, a, a government website from the United States anyways uh, that sort of overviews the, the condition and what they're actually studying about it.
0: Okay, amazing. Thank you. So the symptoms, like you said, so urgency, frequency, pelvic pain. How does someone know what's abnormal and what's normal? Because I, you know, I have this with a lot of my clients. Like I'll ask them how many times they urinate, and they're like, you know, 15 times a day, like probably normal. <laughs> like, and I know before I um got diagnosed, like my bladder frequency and urgency and kind of feeling like it wasn't empty went on for years and years and years, and I just didn't think there was anything wrong with it. I literally just thought i don't know what I thought I just I just <laughs> right. you um, know, and I think you yeah. bring up a great point, right? I think you bring up the point
1: that we all try to rationalize a little bit of what's actually happening, right? And, you know, we hear all of these excuses about, Mm. um, you know, quote unquote excuses about, well, I must pee a lot because I drink a lot of water or because I have a small bladder or well, I definitely had that bladder irritant. And so, you know, that probably makes sense. Right. And some of some of those things are true. Um, but, but you bring up a great point that in order to understand what is abnormal, um, or something that we need to be addressing, um, then we also have to understand what is quote unquote normal, um, or within a normal range. Right. Mm-hmm. And so just to give you an example, right. So, um, let's talk about urinary frequency, right? So urinary frequency for a normal, quote unquote, bladder person that is drinking the amount that they're supposed to be drinking should only urinate approximately, you know, the literature says four to six, sometimes we do seven times. So if you're going seven or eight times per day, then that's definitely in the, at the low end of... of you know, I hate using the word abnormal, but it's definitely out of the normal range. Let's Mm -hmm. say that. And then, you know, and a lot of people will be listening thinking like, oh my gosh, that's so me. Do I have IC? Right. And you have Mm -hmm. to definitely combine that with most people have some form of frequency, right. And also, Urgency, which is, and in everybody, it's normal to have urges, right? We all that's how we all know that we need to urinate is that we get an urge to go. Mm -hmm. It is normal for us to be able to suppress that first urge and have it almost go away to be undetectable because that first urge that we have does not mean that your bladder is full. We usually get our first urge when the bladder is a third full or so. So most of us should be able to stave off that first urge, but when the urge comes back very suddenly and really strong to the point where you cannot ignore and you're rushing to the bathroom, that's also a sign that there is something off with the way that your brain and bladder are talking to each other. Um, And we'll go into that a little bit more um, because there is a huge component of IC that disrupts that brain-bladder connection and then the other you know sort of big symptom with interstitial cystitis is that that is those urgency and frequency symptoms are are accompanied also by some form of pelvic pain and this is where the range of pain diagnoses or pain symptoms gets gets really broad right because there's a lot of people that have just generalized lower abdominal pain, like right above the pubic bone or right where your bladder is. Um, that's also a really common sign of endometriosis as you I'm sure Mm. well know, and some of your listeners know. So that's, you know, sometimes interesting where it's like, Ooh, what's coming from what thing? Um, there's also painful urination, feeling like you have a UTI, but you test negative for that. Um, there's all kinds of, but any any part of the g- basically genitourinary system or lower abdominal, pelvic inner thighs, that's perineum, um, any sort of that pain, um, as well as genital pain, uh, vaginal for males, uh, penile scrotal, you know testicular anything like that. Then that is now you have symptoms both of lower urinary tract and pelvic pain. And by that alone, you can be diagnosed with interstitial cystitis.
0: Okay. That's so, I have, I have so many questions, but I'm going to wait till <laughs> we get to the brain connection. Um, and I hope I remember it. I'm going to cross my fingers so I remember what to ask. Um, so there are a lot of theories around the causes of IC. Um, and I really liked in your book that you you know, you break them down into evidence-based ones. And I just wondered if you could take us through some of these key ones. And obviously, because the, you know, my main focus is endometriosis, I was kind of wondering what the link is there and whether you think it can be, you know, is it the inflammation from the endo and the heightened pain sensitivity? Yeah. So yeah. And
1: this is something I think that, that can get you know, if you do any research on your own about it, you can go down all these big time rabbit holes about what the heck is going on and what's causing it. And it can lead you down a path of sort of despair because at the end of the day, right now, we don't have a true, true one thing causes I see, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what it ends up being, and this is some of the stuff that's come out of some of the NIH or National Institutes of Health research um, recently, that it really is a symptom cluster that involves the brain the nervous system the bladder sometimes and the pelvic floor and we'll get into that a lot but but I think that that's the that's the take home message of what is the cause right and and things like inflammation can can affect each one of those areas and so that's why so many of the quote unquote remedies or uh, people that are talking about interstitial cystitis also always end up talking about inflammation um, because inflammation can drive pelvic floor dysfunction, can drive pain. And now you have this sort of circle of what I call the dip cycle in the book, which is pelvic floor dysfunction, inflammation, and pain. And each one of those things can influence each other. And so instead of that what and what I like to talk about is instead of that becoming overwhelming being like, "Oh my gosh, I have three total big things that I have to to right. address." Yeah. It's more like you have a lot of options in order to in you have a ton of options in order to get that symptom relief down mm-hmm. or to, you know, go underneath that pain threshold line or the symptom threshold line. And so I I like to look at that as like, there's a lot of, yes, there's a lot of things that can be at play, but there's also a lot of ways that we can intervene that can yield a symptom resolution or a symptom reduction.
0: Yeah. And I, yeah, I love that approach actually. Like I haven't really thought about it in that way that it's not like oh there's so many things so so many moving parts but actually well there's there's so many options to start calming down the the system overall um yeah yeah, I'd love to hear a bit about the theories and and also another one that I wanted to kind of ask in relation to that is whether you see a strong association with um SIBO and the reason why I asked that is because most of my clients and a lot of my listeners suffer with SIBO or suspected SIBO or just really chronic bloating and gut health issues. Most of them have some kind of bladder discomfort or bladder frequency, and then they have endo. And um, I was speaking to Dr. Seebecker. I don't know if you've heard of Oh, yes, cool. Yes. Um, so, so I trained with Dr. Seebecker with, um, for SIBO and she came on the podcast recently and we were talking about, um, just the crazy, you know, correlation between SIBO and endo. And there's now studies showing that 80% of people with endo have SIBO and every single client that I've tested for SIBO is positive and they've all got IC problems. So it's just, you know, and, um, Alison has said that with her clients, when they treat the SIBO the IC tends to disappear. Yeah,
1: and I think, and I uh, can't quote me on this for sure, but I think that when SIBO is treated, I think Jessica Drummond wrote an article where I think the bladder symptoms decrease by I think it's something like 40, 44%, something like that. Wow. So, you know, there's certainly a huge correlative effect with those things, right? The real question is what is the underlying root cause of all those? And is there one thing, (laughs) right? Um, So, and that's a, you know, probably a podcast for a different day. But what I will say is that here's what we do know in terms of some of those causes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Let's go over the big, the biggest one first, and then we'll get into the SIBO. There used to be Um, basically since the early 1900s by a a urologist named Dr. Hunter, he was the first one to describe um, these bladder ulcerations in the bladder lining in some of the patients that exhibited symptoms that were similar to interstitial cystitis. And so for, I think from basically the early 1900s until about the 70s, 1970s, the overarching theory of interstitial cystitis was number one, it was mostly in women. And number two, it was due to these ulcerations in the bladder wall and the bladder lining. And so that's where it got its name, interstitial cystitis, right? So interstitial means like in the interstitium, which is like the, the between space, basically between the the lining of the bladder, and the muscle of the bladder called the detrusor muscle. And so, but what some researchers, um, I believe at Stanford, ended up finding in the late 70s was that the majority of people with these interstitial cystitis symptoms actually don't have these things called Hunter's lesions. And in fact, over 90% of people with interstitial cystitis do not have any bladder lining Pathology. Oh, wow. So, to put it in a different way, right? T- only 10% of people actually have something definitively wrong with their bladder lining. And so that sort of toppled everybody's knowledge of interstitial cystitis <laughs> on its head because mm-hmm. we used to think that it was this major bladder condition, and all of the treatments that were being developed and all of the things that were being studied. We're all based on the bladder lining, the bladder wall, urine, urine acidity.
0: Yes, um, yeah,
1: that's where all of that came from. And then urine, you know, uh, markers. We're trying to find urine markers. Can we describe a urine marker for uh, people with interstitial cystitis and people without? I see. And so far, after years and years and years of research, we have not been able to find any bladder centric pathology other than the 10% of people that have Hunter's lesions um, for the cause of interstitial cystitis. So the big question is then well if it's not the darn bladder then what the heck is it because you know you take any person that has symptoms of IC and you swear up and down you'd put your hand on the bible swear on everything that is holy <laughs> that it is coming from the bladder and that's that's true that your your brain is interpreting that there is bladder problems,
0: right. um,
1: and so we'll go into that a little bit more. But that's one of the biggest theories that I think we need to debunk. And for some people, that is one hundred percent true. And if you're one of those ten percent of people that have Hunter's lesions, then then your treatment approach becomes way more bladder centric than than most other people's needs to be. Um, so I don't want to misconstrue that 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 doesn't exist because it does. But where that becomes a bit of an issue is when your urologist will, t- will do a cyst- cystoscopy and some are still under the impression that they can dot, quote unquote diagnose, I see here, but they do sometimes need to rule out other conditions, right? And so they look up in with the cystoscopy and they say, well, your bladder's really red and it looks angry or you know, about 40% of your bladder lining is red and irritated. Mm -hmm. And what's really gets misconstrued in that message, again, is that there is something wrong with the bladder, but they've actually done studies to show that that is a relatively normal finding, even in asymptomatic people. And so we can't go with, and some of the other names for that are glomerulations, um, redness, focal redness, focal irritation, but those are relatively normal findings across some of the normal population. So those can't necessarily be blamed all the time for the interstitial cystitis symptoms. However, a lot of, uh, Physicians still sort of think about it that way. And, you know, to their credit, of if they have a positive finding on that and the person is complaining completely of bladder pain and they don't know the intricate you know, research that has been coming out on interstitial cystitis, then of course we're going to correlate those two things. The problem with that Mm -hmm. though, is that that perpetuates that this is a bladder problem. And then all of the medications, all of the interventions are very bladder centric. And so what we end up, we do know though, um, that, and there's a doctor in, um, I believe it's Michigan and his name is Dr. Ken Peters. And I love quoting him because he said it so eloquently and I'll probably botch it. But he said something like, (laughs) he said something like, you know, the bladder in interstitial cystitis is so much more of an innocent bystander um, than we once thought. And really what most people have is a nervous system upregulation or an, an overactive sympathetic nervous system. And pelvic floor dysfunction. And that's really what we're sort of believed to be the founding causes of that. Now you can go down all kinds of rabbit holes as to, well, why is that? Um, And then we can get into pain science and we'll go into a little bit of why the pelvic floor actually manifests these symptoms. Um, But what we know that it is not necessarily definitively correlated with is hormones, Um, they've done a lot of studies on estrogen levels and have found some connection, but not statistically significant and not definitive enough over a a large sample size to really say anything about, you know, hormone fluctuations. Mm -hmm. Um, the, there's some evidence that, you know, the histamine, you know, uh, overactive histamine response. Um, is present with you know the mast cell activation syndrome being present as well. That is true for some people. That is not true for everybody with IC. And so now here we go down all of these different rabbit holes about you know well if there's multiple multiple causes then maybe there is something else underlying all of it um, that that truly isn't you know one thing that we're going to be able to to pinpoint. And so you know again that that can seem disappointing and i believe and i try to represent in the book and everything that that's actually again kind of a positive thing right if it's not Sure, it would all. Wouldn't it be great if we could take a pill and get rid of I C. Right? I think we could all agree that that would be kind of a perfect world scenario. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. as we all know, all too well for 2020, this is not a perfect world. Um, and so, but I really do believe that there can be interventions at different levels: at the nervous system level, at the inflammatory level, at the pelvic floor level, that can really, you know, eliminate if not resolve most of the symptoms of interstitial cystitis and so sometimes i you know when my patients come in and they're overly perseverating on well i don't i just don't understand what causes it i just want to know what causes it we really try hard on focusing um away from that and focusing on what we can do about the symptoms and and let all of the scientists that are working really hard to try to figure it all out and <laughs> do what they're going to do
0: okay this is absolutely fascinating because i you know i've been trying to Work out what's been triggering my symptoms, um, especially this year because it's been so bad. So, yeah, this is just a really interesting approach. So, what what is your approach when it comes to helping patients who I see, like obviously, you have quite a specific approach that you take in your book. So, where where would you get started if we're not sort of chasing down these rabbit holes and are more like taking a, a wider? view of the inflammation, the pelvic floor, and the nervous system. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. um, Let me, okay. So real quick though, let me go back really quick because I didn't answer one of your questions about the SIBO connection. Oh, right. Right. (laughs) Okay. So let me go back there and then we'll talk about like where the heck we get started on the pelvic floor and nervous system component. So what we do know, we do also know though that there are some, some conditions that are really highly correlated together, right? So interstitial cystitis, endometriosis, they call those the evil twins. Um, right. Um, but they have shown that people with IBS, right, which now we know probably SIBO is a significantly underlying factor in most cases of IBS, mm-hmm. right, um, that SIBO and I- slash IBS and interstitial cystitis are also really linked and correlated together. Um, things like asthma and allergies are correlated together. Things like fibromyalgia, people tend to be diagnosed similarly um, with those things and chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah. So there, we do see some of those of, of people having multiple diagnoses and a lot of those you know if you take like for instance asthma and allergies and ic maybe that maybe for that person there's a, an underlying histamine response that needs to be addressed more so than the next person um maybe somebody that has you know IBS/ slash and and potentially SIBO. um and ic that person has an underlying gut dysbiosis issue um, that is driving some of those symptoms so i tend to think about it so now this is going to kind of bleed into where do we get started i kind of tend to think about it into the you know, what is your individual driver mm-hmm. um, and how many, like of if you looked at yourself in a big pie chart, right? What percentage of these different categories would you say um, your symptoms are in? And and really try to test those out. And that's where I feel like a pelvic floor physio can be really helpful because we can look at the musculoskeletal, the muscles, the nerves, um, ligaments around the pelvic floor and where your bladder literally sits. Um, Mm -hmm. Are those, you know, our factor? If so, what percentage? Um, Do we have an inflammation problem, a diet issue? Do we see a huge correlation with things that you put in your mouth and your symptoms? Some people are, it's a hundred percent Absolutely, other people. It's like I feel like I can eat whatever I want, and it's some of the same type of pain. So you know, there's not one one size fits all diet. There's not one size fits all treatment approach, but there are those different factors that really need to to look at that pie chart for you and say, okay, what about it is nervous system related, right? And that's also stress and autonomic nervous system uh, involvement. Is there what? How much of it is you know actual bladder? How much of it is inflammation and the inflammatory response overactive? And how much of it is musculoskeletal with the muscles and the nerves around the pelvis? So those are like the big categories that I kind of like to start off with a hypothesis for my patients, and then through different treatment techniques, sort of see you know if we you know if we have a hypothesis that it's 75% your pelvic floor and 25% all the other things, then we would suspect a, a 75% improvement if we decrease your uh, pelvic floor symptoms, right? So if that's not the case, then we sort of redraw the the map and we sort of see, okay, where else do we need to, to focus? Um, so in that way, I kind of feel like we can hone in on the majority of the driver and then... Focus a little bit better on the things that we can actually make a big, big difference on.
0: Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in, so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. Some people even find that wearing them a night before their period can really help soothe the inflammation in the area. To shop, just head to the link in my show notes. This episode is also sponsored by my free guide, Managing Endometriosis Naturally. If you don't know where to start with beginning to take a holistic approach to managing your endometriosis symptoms, then this might help you. Um, If you'd like to download it, just head to the show notes and follow the link and you can get your free copy. This is so interesting. So I'm going to, if it's okay, I'm going to kind of give you like my, my situation as almost like a case scenario to like lead into sure. other questions. Um, and it would just be interesting. And I think like, because, um, you know, people with endo, we tend to be a complicated bunch. And probably, I'm sure yes. there's other people listening who are in the same boat as me. So hopefully this will be useful for them. But, um, for so with my example, I have SIBO. Um okay. and so I have tested positive for both, and Dr. Alison Seebecker agrees that she thinks I have hydrogen sulfide type SIBO as well. Okay. Um so I've got all three, and we know that hydrogen sulfide type SIBO causes worse histamine intolerance and bladder issues. Yeah. Uh, I, I see. Um obviously I have endo and I have um IC. And then I also have lots of allergies and, um, what seems to be histamine intolerance and oxalate sensitivity as well. Um, and I def, and I mean, I have trauma to my pelvis and spine. I broke my, um, pelvis, hips and spine in a car accident And, and like my lower spine as well. So all in the same area. Um, and then obviously was had a catheter for like weeks and weeks after that. Um, so there's quite a lot there, so I just I don't know. I wondered like what are your thoughts if someone seemed to fall into a lot of categories and when it comes to approaching that, would you with something like the i c diets that are out there, I went to Dr. Jessica Drummond because I had tried the i i mean I have eaten an anti-inflammatory diet for like five, six years now. Like I don't get period pain. If I do eat something sugary or something, yes, I get period pain. But as long as I'm eating an anti-inflammatory diet, I don't get endopain anymore. But I have this bladder, you know, this bladder pain all the time. This year I've had it every single day and all night, Um, Mm. all year. And it's varied. It has reduced in severity recently, but it's mainly been kind of seven to 10 on the pain scale, like most of the time this year. Um, and so I went to Jessica Drummond and Jan and we did a low histamine, low oxalate. Cause she was like, you're eating an anti-inflammatory diet. And I had a lot of like histamine kind of signs, like race in heart and just okay. you know, all of those things and the race in heart and everything went down. Um, the okay. palpitations went down, but the bladder pain got so much worse but the at the same time I would notice like worse than in pain with certain foods and then a decrease if I was like okay I think I need to take that one out but then the decrease would only last for like two days and then it would come back and it feels like at the moment every week there's a new food and it does feel correlated to food but then it's like a new thing every week. It's like my body gets sensitive to a new thing every week. So I guess wrapped up in all of that is, you know, would, would like histamines and oxalates play such a role? And if it seems this complicated, like, would you, would you look at the diet or would you think, no, this is, this is more than that because the the pain has persisted past the diet changes?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. And, and clearly you had some sort of diet component, right? Mm -hmm. Um, because otherwise, I mean, because that, when you started seeing her, you had a significant decrease in your, well, first of all, anti-inflammatory diet decreased a lot of your endopain. And then you had a lot of other positive changes when you went to the low histamine, low oxalate, right? Mm -hmm. So But at the point now where you're at that baseline, right, of like, but then there's still some other types of symptoms Mm. that don't don't seem to be affected necessarily by food, right? Like how much better can you be eating? How much more nutrient-dense food can you be putting in your body? That's where I love to, cool, like that seems like an amazing start and now we need to keep that consistent, almost like a little scientist, right? Mm. So like, that's amazing. Now we know what is very sensitive, very, um, linked to, to your diet. But this is where I feel like you can get off on all sorts of little tangents on like, well, is it this food or is it that one? Yeah. Or that D- today sure. it did this yesterday. It did that. Um, and then you kind of go a little nuts, so right on trying to essentially what I call chase the foods that are problematic when you know you've dropped them so significantly, the symptoms so significantly from this baseline diet. So my proposal then for you would be to keep that exactly how it is, right where you know all the things that are safe. We're not trying new things. We're not. We're keeping a, a relatively low baseline. And then add in some other things in those other different categories to see what effect does that do have on it. And things like, I'm, and I don't know if you've seen a pelvic physio. Yeah, I've actually you have, great right? girl.
0: Yeah. I mean, I can't see her during COVID, but I do all of my exercises and stretches every day. Like I yeah. Do those. So
1: then, you know, there's that. There's the pelvic floor dysfunction part of it. That Because remember, pelvic floor dysfunction can also mimic the symptoms of interstitial cystitis. Mm. So if there is any what we call hypertone or tightness or um, yeah. over activation of the pelvic floor, Um, then that can cause urinary urgency, frequency, and pelvic pain, right? Mm -hmm. And so the driver of that can be all kinds of musculoskeletal things likely to do with your car accident. But also, we cannot underestimate here the autonomic nervous system and the amount, the, the years of threat response that your body has been under now with all of these conditions. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes what ends up happening is that that is the thing that we actually have to address from a underlying level is how is your brain interpreting what is actually going on in your body? Because right now it might not be giving you as accurate of information as we would hope it would. And that's sometimes the biggest. Sort of aha moment. Sometimes it can be really frustrating as we're trying to truly hone in on that. Um, But there's some excellent pain science research that shows that when your autonomic nervous system is chronically overactive, um, then it changes the way that your body perceives pain, right? It changes where in the brain it functions and it changes your sensitivity to pain um and it changes how your body reacts to other things right so now you have a food that you know maybe 2 years ago didn't used to bother you and now because that overactivation of the nervous system there's a little bit of an inflammatory response because of histamine or oxalates or whatever and now your brain s- takes that as a huge threat and then produces pain to get you safer, right? It's trying to get you safe, um, but it's, it's, it's going off too much. It's kind of like a car alarm that is that kind where it's kind of like, what? whose car alarm is going off <laughs> when somebody is just walking by, right? Like, what the heck? Yeah. It's kind of like that, except for it still activates all of the physiological responses as if you're getting hurt still. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. and so that can be going on from an inflammation level. That can be also be going on from a musculoskeletal level, where we have to calm your entire nervous system in order to, to really get and and that's what takes time, and that's what takes yeah. perseverance and 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 not um, playing into all of like not. And it's hard, right? Because your body's literally wiring yourself to be fearful of that so that you stop mm-hmm. doing whatever it thinks you're doing. Um, but we know now that pain does not equal any sort of tissue damage whatsoever. And so there's it's just we it's just your body's way to to say that there's something still awry. Um, and so that's the kind of hypersensitive nervous system that we have to address. And I believe that physios, can really tap into that um, by not only just focusing on your pelvic floor, but really treating in a head-to-toe fashion where we're actually activating the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic activation, which is the opposite of that overactive uh, nervous system. So we can do things to facilitate that. Um, physically. And then you can also do a ton of the stuff that everybody hears about that sort of wants to. you want to roll your eyes at, right? Like <laughs> meditation, mindfulness, <laughs> um, all of those things, which sounds so frustrating when someone's telling you, except for when you really think that it really truly can be a volume knob that you turn down on that sympathetic nervous system side on a physiological level. And that's why we want you guys to do that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And What's really interesting is when I first went to see, um, Dr. Jessica Drummond, I said to her, she was like, does the pain ever get better? And I was like, well, it's, it's been getting worse for years. Like it's, it's now the worst it's been, but I have less pain at the weekends because most of the time I can't, when I saw her anyway, I couldn't sleep. Um, I was having like four hours sleep a night because the pain was so strong but I can sleep at the weekends. Now it's not to say that I don't have pain. It's just pain that I can sleep through. Um, but m- most mornings, like if I wake up and I urinate, I'll feel, i feel pain. And, you know, during the week, if for, I mean, I don't sleep in because I got work, but if I had, right. if I could had the opportunity to, I wouldn't be able to fall back to sleep because of the pain. Um, and so I can get woken up at like 3am and go to the toilet and then I can't go back to sleep because of the pain but at the weekends that doesn't happen I sleep free
1: interesting yes and so
0: Jessica was like what are you what are you eating at the weekends and I was like well I am generally eating less vegetables because I eat like eight portions of veg and two portions of fruit like a day um but at the weekends because I'm out or like I'm eating like you know just kind of differently at the weekends i might have like a brunch or something i'm just not eating as many vegetables still a lot but not you know not eight and so she was like okay well that kind of correlates with you know the oxalates and the histamines and that made sense but now now i've gone through of that process and the pain was still so severe now i'm thinking well is it because i'm more relaxed at the weekends because i am a um i have like bad anxiety and my mm-hmm. kind of base Level of being is just stressed That's just just my baseline level of stress. Yeah, it's just <laughs> so, me. <laughs> yeah. So now you you know your approach. Obviously, we you know um I totally get the approach of like pain signals and um upregulated nervous system and being in the flight or fight response. And it's just something that I. It's really only dawned on me in the past two or three months. So I'm like, actually perhaps the biggest part here is the nervous system because i've been doing the pelvic floor show for like 6 months the mm-hmm. you know the the diet didn't really directly work on the pain um so yeah so it's just really interesting that you said that and i with my clients when we talk about like reducing their pain signals and calming their their pain response down I do always feel like they feel frustrated about the idea of like, well, you know, meditate or lean into joy and pleasure, like read a novel, like, cause it sounds it to them, it feels like they're not doing anything. Exactly. Um, totally. You know, cause we're so used to like, well, cause we're so into wellness now it's like, well, what supplement can I take? Well, what thing can I do rather than what can I just like maybe take off my plate or what can I just What can I
1: say no to,
0: or what can I
1: not feel guilty about, or all of those things? And you know, I think that that it's interesting too, because sometimes it's all about how you frame it in your mind, right? So if if we talk about the the de-stressing and doing all those things, right? I mean, if you, especially like someone like you and someone like a lot of people, especially in this COVID time, um, you know, have this sort of undercurrent of that's just kind of how you are, um, Mm -hmm. upregulated nervous system, kind of a, you know, overthinker, perfectionist, all these other things, um, type A, we kind of call it right. Um, but at the end of the day, that, can be that. That is another area that can be addressed at multiple different levels and layers. Mindfulness, meditation, de-stressing, talking to a psychologist are all one part of it. But then there's also the physical, the physical safety mechanisms that we can be placing in your body as as, phys, as physios on. How can I, for instance, um, like activate the vagus nerve around where it comes out behind your ear and into your neck muscles and are you breathing in a way that overactivates the neck muscles that that stifles that vagus nerve um, and things like that and so now all of a sudden we can work physically up in areas that is going to help your autonomic nervous system or the nerve the, the rest relax digest nervous system how can we Facilitate that from a physical standpoint as well, and find mm-hmm. other areas to work that that system so that it will become more responsive to some of the mindfulness meditation stuff, some of the de-stressing from a physical standpoint. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And for anyone who doesn't know what the vagus nerve is, and like the the two um, nervous systems we're talking about, could you quickly give an overview? Yes. So- yeah
1: so the uh, the automatic responses in our body things like breathing heart rate, uh- Uh, having a bowel movement, um, having a bladder, uh, you know, having a bladder urge and and peeing and all of those types of things, sexual responses are another one. There's a nervous system called the autonomic nervous system, and it's made up of two different parts. And one is responsible for, you know, what would have been responsible um, in caveman days of fight, flight, freeze, like I'm getting. You know, chased by a lion, oh no, I need to be on alert right now all the time. Um, that nervous system is called the sympathetic nervous system. And then the other one, the other part of the automatic or autonomic nervous system is called the parasympathetic. And that's the one that's on a lot more when we're just chilling out, we're safe, resting, relaxing, digesting, possibly procreating, all of the things that you would want to put on hold for a second if you had to like get out of a dangerous situation. And what our, you know, sort of society is like now is that there is no, there, there's used to be high peaks Um, And then also right back down to baseline. And now our sympathetic nervous system, that fight, flight, freeze response tends to be up. uh, We call it upregulated in a lot of different ways. Um, And that is one of the ways that that something like urinary urgency and frequency can be manifesting in that upregulation of the nervous system. Because as a simple sidebar, So hopefully everyone's following, but now that that autonomic nervous system, because it helps the functions of bowel and bladder symptoms or uh, functions, it is one, the nerve that goes to the bladder is one of the only nerves that carries that type of nervous system. So it's not like that nervous system is, is in our bicep, right? It's not in our quadriceps. It's not in our leg muscles it's really it's in our pelvic floor and that nerve also has extra nerve endings that go to the bladder. And so so to in short, right, the autonomic nervous system or that fight flight freeze response can get turned on and that autonomic nervous system can basically give you false senses of when you have to pee and pelvic pain when it feels like it's on. And if there's no dimmer switch to turn it back down, then we have your urgency, frequency, pelvic pain, urgency, frequency, pelvic pain. And it can be coming from the autonomic nervous system as well as the pelvic floor.
0: So so fascinating. So so it's just
1: one other area to like really not just not just focus on because someone's telling you you need to calm down or you need to get a handle on your stress. Like that's I think that that's irresponsible for healthcare practitioners to just say that to people without actually um, diving into. What are the drivers for that issue? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also that can significantly affect your symptoms, especially of interstitial cystitis, but also of things like endometriosis and um, other things
0: so if we if someone was like looking for a pelvic floor physio, would you how would they know that that person knew how to deal with like the vagus nerve and to calm oh. down?
1: Great question. And I think this is one of the challenges of our field um, right now, right? Because not all pelvic physios are trained the same. And so there's a lot of pelvic physios that are amazing clinicians, but their major focus is on on uh, pregnancy, postpartum, yes. incontinence, that kind of stuff, prolapse, which are wonderful. And we do that at our clinic too. so they can be both. But I would look for somebody that has, and you can ask what continuing education courses have they taken in things like pain science in um, do they do they commonly treat people also with primary diagnoses of pelvic pain syndromes? Um, because there are quite a few um people that really have a passion for pregnancy and postpartum, um, which the you know, pelvic pain as a primary thing with all these different things that you can have, SIBO and, you know, interstitial cystitis, endo, IBS, you know, chronic fatigue, syndrome, fibromyalgia, all these things, then that person really needs to be well versed in in truly activating that that. Parasympathetic nervous system, and most of the time, that's that's manifested in some sort of a, a training and/or um, extra knowledge in the in the pain
0: science world. I hope that yeah. kind of makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I feel like you're going to get a lot of inquiries. Yeah. After, <laughs> after there's people wanting to work with you. Okay, so I I feel like I could talk to you about this for ages, but um, I don't want to take too much more of your time. So. How can listeners, if they can't find a pelvic floor for a show, um, or, you know, maybe given COVID, they just can't do it right now, what techniques could they start using at home? Because I thought you had some really amazing um, suggestions in your book. Yeah.
1: So, you know, if you take a look at, at the the things that can can be contributing, we touched on like kind of those three major ones, right? The nervous system, the pelvic floor, um, and, and a little bit of the bladder, but then also the inflammatory component, right? Some of the things that you can certainly do, even if you can't, you know, see a practitioner in person right this minute is for sure work on the diet, which you have a lot of podcasts on that and work on your gut health. Cause that can also be a, a huge driver to both pelvic floor dysfunction and inflammatory responses. Um, to To pelvic pain, but also um, in the book we go over a couple of pretty general. Where there's like seven exercises that uh, really try to focus on all of the areas that tend to get tight and angry and mad. That can that can ramp up those. Uh, bladder symptoms, mm-hmm. um, and so the seven stretches in that book, the IC solution, are really good baseline kind of for most people to start with, regardless of where you're at. And those things are are in the categories of you know some of them are blends of yoga poses, um, but happy baby, a deep squat stretch if you can get into that without it being painful. Um, a butterfly stretch which stretches the inner thighs, which is a really important area for um, your, for your bladder. Your bladder mm-hmm. actually has connections to the inner thigh and a reflex that um, can irritate the bladder. It's kind of why when we have to pee, we close our legs together, we activate that inner thigh muscle. Um, so a lot of times we want to deactivate that inner thigh muscle. And a lot of us will find that if with you have IC symptoms that'll be really tender so there's two couple of two stretches in there that work on the inner thigh part there's a calf stretch, um, which is another area that gets really overlooked. Um, mm-hmm. The calf actually has connections up to the nerve roots that share um, connections with the bladder and so um, working on the calf muscles and the reasons why your calf muscles can be really tight are, and also um, a good way to go. So there's a couple of stretches in there that kind of kill two birds with one stone that does hip flexors and calves, and then things that stretch your glutes or um, Mm. your piriformis muscle. Um, And so those are kind of the main focus of those areas. There's also um, some ways that you can actually work on your abdominal uh, fascia or the uh, the stuff in between your skin and your muscle over your abdomen and bladder and give it a little bit of of um love and blood flow and space mm-hmm. for your bladder to to um fill up without it being, you know, uh, impeded. And so there's some I have a YouTube channel that there are some um you know uh and, and in the book we also describe some fascial techniques that you can do by yourself over your abdomen that can help a lot. Um, those are the things that come to mind. And then obviously getting some of those apps, um, mindful, mindfulness yeah. apps, headspace, calm, curable, any of those apps can be really helpful. Insight timer can be really great for, um, just starting your, you will call it your nervous system down regulation training, <laughs> um, from that area. So
0: those um, are some areas that people can start with the fascia side of things sounds amazing because, um, it's really interesting whenever my physio, like she wouldn't tell me what she was doing. So, and would ask me like, can you feel anything? And I'd be like, yeah, I can feel this really weird. Like I can't even, I can't even explain it. I'd have to have it again to explain what I felt, but like this weird feeling of like, movement and tingling but on like the opposite sort of like so she would press a scar like obviously I've got quite a few scars from um endosurgery yeah. and I'd feel like almost this like shift around my entire pelvis and around my like um back and like buttocks and then and I was like and I explained it and she was like okay yeah your fascia is like basically realigning and moving and it's so weird because I could feel it every time she did it and um so I didn't know I could do that myself. So yeah. I'm gonna actually try that out um, because, yeah, when I saw that, I was really fascinated. I am um, yeah, such a huge fascial person. I
1: love fascia. I think it's one of the more under-reported stories in PT uh, or yeah. physio, um, and it can just be such a huge connector of things that you don't think are related, right? Which is exactly Jessica, what you just were describing, like. That is what you're describing, and so sometimes you know tightness in your glute um, or around your sacrum can actually be coming down from your calf via you know a posterior fascial connection, and so you really need someone that can explore all of those things with with you and see again if you think about that pie chart, it, it do I have a percentage of my symptoms that are actually coming from the musculoskeletal and fascial system? Um, that happen to be manifesting as bladder, urinary urgency, and pelvic pain, right? And Mm -hmm. so and a lot of times we find that that is one of the main drivers and your brain doesn't know the difference. And that's the biggest piece that I kind of want you guys to, to leave with is that your brain is doing just the best that it can. But sometimes once it's been getting a message over and over again, a message of pain that either when that pain, that, that message goes away, it still thinks it needs to transmit that pain, um, or a pattern of movement that used to produce pain that your, your body can be completely moving in a different way, but your brain still interprets that movement as pain. So those are the things that we as physios can really help to literally rewire the brain and how your Brain is interpreting those pain signals and those bladder signals. Okay, I can't wait to get back to my physio now.
0: <laughs> it's been, yeah, right. It's, it's exciting. Been,
1: and this yeah, is why, I mean, nice. we get so passionate about it. So I feel like look for that. If somebody's listening and they're not sure if they're with the right physio, and, and by the way, you have permission to change your physios, your your medical team. I'm sure you've talked a lot about that on your podcast, but like mm. at the end of the day, we need to all advocate for ourselves and what's best for us. And sometimes it's switching providers or at least getting a second opinion. But but i i want for everybody to be seeing somebody that's as passionate about helping you as you need them to be to help you to get better you know and and this makes me so excited to see a person with interstitial cystitis come in um and and we can look and see all of these little pieces that we talked about how much of it is inflammation how much of it is nervous system how much of it is it is it pelvic floor how much of it is is your life stressors that are going on? How much is it a trauma that you you know maybe endured and you thought you you quote unquote fixed or dealt with and, and it's it's rearing its ugly head in different ways like those are all areas that we can help you to uncover um, and in that way, again, all of those different things can can yield symptom relief and symptom resolution it doesn't have to be that you have to live with this stuff for the rest of your life.
0: Oh my gosh. Thank you so much Nicole. You I can see your passion and enthusiasm just like radiating from you. <laughs> um so yeah, it's just so wonderful to find someone so passionate about this and um advocating for for people with I see and and kind of the areas that are underlooked around it. So thank you so much. Where oh, can sure like um listeners find you and how can they find out more about your work yeah so a couple places so I'm definitely on the gram so I
1: have two <laughs> Instagram accounts so our clinic Instagram account which is a lot more patient focused mm-hmm. um, is called pelvic sanity and the um, other one that I have is like my personal professional one. It's, it's Nicole Cozine DPT. Mm-hmm. My clinic is obviously called Pelvic Sanity and you can go to pelvicsanity.com for a bunch of information. We also have a YouTube channel where those videos, um, were that I spoke about that, that accompany the book. Those videos are on you, our YouTube channels. So if you search YouTube for Pelvic Sanity, those videos should come up. Great. I'll put that um, in the show notes. Yeah. I also go over like what to expect at your first physio visit and what's an internal exam like and all kinds of stuff that can help ease people's mind about actually taking the leap to go see a pelvic physio. Um, those are the main ways you can feel free to email me at Nicole at pelvicsanity.com. I love hearing from people and I love hearing what resonated with you. Um, And then, and yeah, and I have a couple, I mean, the book, the IC solution is, is, is great. And then I just came recently came out with a IC patient centered course, (gasps) online course that has a lot of,
0: yeah, that has a lot of those.
1: Yeah. 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 (laughs) That has just like a lot of the, uh, uh, it's a little bit updated from the book. So instead of writing a second edition of the book, I sort of did that updated some stuff in there and then also have videos and things like that, that um, aren't on YouTube. So
0: have that too. Amazing. So, can they get to the course just through the Pelvic Sanity website?
1: Yes. Yeah. 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 And or Instagram. I think there's a link through the the link in the bio. Instagram
0: link. Okay, I'm doing that. Absolutely. Um, Okay. Thank you so much for coming on. It was so. I have so many other questions for you. Yeah. Um, So I'd be happy to come on again if once you kind of get some feedback and we can do a little Q and A or even do an Instagram live or something. That would be fun. That would be awesome. Um, and you said something that, oh, yes, you mentioned about the um, video you did talking about the internal um, yeah. examination, And I just wanted to let people know that if they hadn't seen, I ha- I actually filmed all of my physiotherapy sessions. Oh, and, no way. That's yeah. so awesome. Where um, is that? So it's on my IGTV. Um, so cool. people can actually watch me having my internal exam. Obviously, I'm covered with a towel, um, but um, otherwise no doubt IG would take that down, but, um, you can kind of hear the conversation and what she's doing and my response and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, there's about four or five videos because I have a backlog of videos to edit and add up, but, um, yeah, so if anyone. What wants- a great resource. Thanks
1: for doing that. That's awesome. I'll make sure that a lot of my patients can, can go to that too. Cause that's so, so
0: important. Good job. That's awesome. You're welcome. I'm an open book. I literally (laughs) have no problem with people. That's so cool. Yeah, seeing what I'm up to. So um, yeah, well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And um, yeah, I just absolutely love your works. And I'm definitely going to take some of your recommendations. from this. Yeah, well, thanks
1: so much for having me. I really, really, really appreciate it. And um, we'll be in touch. We'll be in close touch.
0: Thanks, Nicole. Bye. Bye. So that's it thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, You can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. Really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Podfarm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world.